Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. As we pick up in the text again, this, uh, Exodus 15, starting with verse 22, begins a new chapter, a new section of the book of Exodus. So to remind you what's happened already, uh, uh, Israel's in Egypt. Egyptians don't like them anymore, try to kill them all, kill the babies, genocide, try to oppress them. God comes down, sees their troubles, remembers or or enacts the covenant he had made with their forefathers to save them, and brings raises up Moses to lead them out. Of course, Egypt and Pharaoh don't have anything to do with that. And so ten plagues were visited, ten uh, natural disasters, with the last one being the death of the firstborn. Finally, Pharaoh gives in until they get out. And once they get out, Pharaoh changes his mind, goes after them, wants to kill them all. So God backs them up against the Red Sea, opens the Red Sea. They go through. They're saved through the water from judgment. But when the Egyptians come through the same water, God closes it over them and kills them, which effectively eliminates all threat to Israel. Now they're on the other side of the river, uh, on the other side of the water. The Egyptian army's dead. There's literally nothing that can hurt them because they're all drowned. And so they sing a song of praise. And that's the beginning of chapter 15 where they realize they've been saved from their oppressors. God has rescued them. They're a new people in, in God, and they praise him. Now begins the life of a free people on their own, which is tr- very dramatic after 400-plus years in another country, both as foreigners and slaves. Now they're on their own. So you can imagine how, have you ever heard about prisoners? who spend 30 years in prison and they get out and they don't know what to do with themselves? Yeah, that's what they have here. For 400 years, they've been a nation in bondage. Now they're free. Now what? And so we begin with verse 22, chapter 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Merah, They could not drink the waters of Merah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Merah. So the word Merah is is Hebrew for bitter. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute. God made a statute and ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on on you which I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. So you have here the first full day in the life of the new nation of Israel. And it's terrible. Rescued, brought out, and immediately put into trouble. So the question this chapter is talking about is, what does life look like with God? Not with Egypt, with God. What does it look like? How do we understand the world differently? Now that we're not in the bond of of Egypt, how how does the world look to us now? We have a new perspective. And what about suffering? What about bad stuff? Now that we're God's people, now what? Bad stuff's still happening. So that's what the chapter's going to talk about. And 
it's going to have some application that applies to us directly and some things that have changed since the Old Testament. So they have a new life. God's like, I rescued you. The people sing a song of praise. Chapter 15 is about them just praising how great God is and, and what he's done for them. And then what, what does God do immediately after that? Takes them into the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East, the Middle East or seen it. It's a rough place. It's a lot of sand. And where there's not sand, there's funny creatures and scraggly bushes. And unless you're near a river, it's not a very nice place to be. They were not near a river. So immediately after being rescued, they're taken into the most desolate place in that part of the country, into the wilderness. Just the name wilderness is not inviting. Kind of a disappointment, isn't it? Now they're God's people. Now what? Not only are they brought into the wilderness, look what happens. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They're sort of on a high. You can imagine how triumphant they feel. All this time they've been rescued. And they went out to the wilderness. Now they're thinking, okay, not what we hoped for, but whatever. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When you're in the desert, you have, no, you have one priority. Your, your number one priority is water. I've been in the desert. There's other things that can kill you there especially in Iraq this time of the year. But your number one priority is water. Everything else goes out the window. People with guns, poisonous creatures, everything, when you don't have water. In fact, the uh, first time I was there, they didn't refrigerate the water. They left it outside, which means it was 120 degrees. I'm not sure which was worse, no water or hot water. But that shut down everything. So now you have them three days without water. Then they came to Merah, where there was water, except there wasn't. So they're starting to get disappointed. They're walking in the desert. They're, they're running out of water, which means you'll die very quickly, very quickly. Your kids will die. It doesn't take very long. It takes hours in that kind of environment. Then they come to the water. They see it. They come up to it. They're like, finally, we know it wasn't that bad. God has saved us. They get to the water, and what happens? The water's bitter. Think of the disappointment. The disappointment of saying things are really bad, but now it's okay, but even the water itself is poisonous, full of salt or minerals or whatever it was. They couldn't drink the water, which means they were going to die. So think of their position. They're not making up problems. In their eyes, this was the end. They were all going to die. No one was going to help them. Where would they get water from? Go three days back? You can't go six days without water. So in their mind, in their eyes, they were going to die. But look at their reaction. And the people complained against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, the word complain there is not voicing legitimate concerns. They are, I think, grumbling is a word, murmuring. It's a dark word. Why did God do this? He had just saved them from the Egyptians. Now he's going to set them up for failure? Why, didn't, why did he take them to a place where the water was bitter? It says here that he was testing them. Now the word test, we think of sort of to see if you can make it. No. He's showing them something. He said, you are on a spiritual high coming out of Egypt, coming through the Red Sea. But let me show you who you really are. 
let me do one thing wrong and see what happens. He, three days from destroying an entire army and delivering them through a miraculous event, and they are already turning against their leader. The first problem they come across. Now, it's a legitimate problem, sure, but no worse than being backed up against the Red Sea. No worse than the entire nation of Israel trying to kill you. So suffering here, there's a problem. There's suffering. There's, there's danger. There's bitterness. Reveals their heart. God intentionally brought them to this place. Intentionally disappointed them. So they could see who they were. God is doing the same thing to you. God is intentionally bringing bad people into your life. Bringing bad situations into your life so that you can see who you are. You know why you're bitter against other people? It's not because they hurt you. It's because you're sinful. This church is a place where God brings bad people together to make a point. He's making a point by having hurtful people in this church. You said, God wouldn't let people hurt me. Not only would he let it, he brought you together with hurtful people. He brought you to bitter water to see what would happen. So you can see it's not the water that's the problem. It's the heart that's the problem. See, God wants you to see who you are. He wants to bring out the truth. The Bible is nothing if it's not honest. It doesn't pretend that God's people are good people. It shows them for who they are. He tested them to show them that they had a bitter heart. That's what the bitterness of the water revealed. And that's what it reveals to us. God is bringing things into our life to show us something. When someone hurts you and you become bitter about it, you are revealing that you're selfish because it's about you. You reveal that you're immature. When we complain, don't we all complain? Some more than others, but all of us complain. You're revealing immaturity. What did Arnold Schwarzenegger say to the kindergartners? Stop whining. Stop whining. Why? Because they're small children. But when we complain, God is saying, see, you're not as good as you thought you were. You're just like a small child who as soon as something goes wrong, as soon as someone does something wrong, you complain about it. So you can check yourself for maturity. How often are you complaining? How often are you complaining? Now, you may not realize how much you're complaining, but other people do. And a side note for Christianity, for the church, that's what the church is supposed to do, tell you when you're complaining. You should have people in your life who can tell you, and you should do complain a lot. You don't want to hear that, do you? Because then it's about you. You see, the Israelites said to Moses, what have you done? Why have you brought us here? Where's the water that you are supposed to provide? And God says, don't look at Moses. You're the problem. So when someone tells us we're complaining, it's saying to us, it's not the person who hurts you is the problem. It's not your job that's the problem. It's not your health that's the problem. It's your heart. And an immature child can't see that. And that's who we are. That's why God says give thanks in everything. In everything? What about when someone takes something from us that belonged to us? Yes, because what does it show? We are bound to that thing. We wanted it so bad that when they took it, it crushed us. Aren't you thankful that God took that from you? To show you who you are? 
maturity will say, yes, thank you. Immaturity will say, you know what happened this week? Now, we don't say, and they didn't say it here, they didn't say, God, why did you bring us to this place and disappoint us? And we don't say that either. We say, you know what happened at work? My boss, again. Not, God let my boss do that to me, to show me. You see what the Bible says to the Israelites and to us? Get ready for trouble. It's for your own good. Get ready to see how weak you are. Get ready to see how after all these years, you're still a little petty inside. After being brought through the Red Sea, the Israelites are petty. They turn on Moses, knowing who God is, yet they turn on him. James 1 says that there's a reason that suffering comes in. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy when you are wronged. Count it all joy when you get sick. Count it all joy when you get hurt at work. Knowing that the testing of your face, the word testing again, produces patience. Now what you have to realize is, before the trial, you didn't have patience. No, we don't like to hear that. We don't like to know that we're impatient, stomping our feet because dinner's not ready. But the test shows us and then produces it. You should, do you pray that God will help you grow? Do you know what you're praying for? You're praying for people to hurt you. You're praying for suffering. Now you're like, oh, I don't want to pray for to grow anymore. The Bible is saying you grow through trials. And trials produce patience. But that gives us a different perspective than everyone around us. In says, Christ is testing us. This is not an occasional spot check to see if we really mean business. Like, let's see if you really mean business. Let's put some trouble in your life. It is Christ knowing full well that when push comes to shove, we don't mean business. But he's here to train us to do so. When push comes to shove, and the problem comes in, it's really bad, you don't mean business. That's where the complaining comes from. That's where the depression comes from. That's where the downcasting comes from. I can't, if this would only go away, my life would be better. No, it just showed you that you were not a good Christian. Christ knew you weren't. He wasn't waiting to see if you were. He knew you weren't, and now he's showing you. Aren't you thankful that God brought you into this church with a bunch of people who are going mess to mess your life up? Aren't you thankful so that they can show you how messed up you are? Now Christ can train us. See, what we're doing is we're thinking with our stomachs. When there's no water, what do you think about? Water. But that's this world. The Israelites, all they could think about was the fact they were going to die from dehydration. Shame on them. What else are you going to think about? It's saying, think about God even when you're dying of dehydration. Now, whatever that dehydration is in your life where it's sucking the life out of you, you should be thinking about God. And just as we look at them and see them going to die in the wilderness, so we may die from our suffering. But the point is, God brought it for a purpose. And yet, this is the kind of God. Look at the kind of God that brings the suffering. They complain against Moses, God's man, saying, what shall we drink? Why'd you mess everything up? And so Moses cried out to the Lord, like we should do, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Wait a minute. 
they act like spoiled children, and God gives them water. Why? Do you do that with your kids? Throw a fit, and you're like, okay, fine, I'll reward you for throwing a fit. God's not rewarding them. He's saying, you're a little baby, and I'm going to give you what you need right now, and I'm going to bring you along. See, when God brings trials into your life, it's not to make your life worse. And so he gives graciousness to you also. He gives you sweet water to show you that he still cares about you. I don't know what that is in your life. Maybe when one person hurts you, another person encourages you. Maybe when everything's taken away from you, you realize what you actually had to begin with. Whatever it is, it's God showing you that things are tough and things are going to be really hard, but it's not all bad. God is still giving you water, and it's not because you reacted well. Aren't you glad that God calls you to suffer? You react very poorly and very immaturely, and God's like, I'll still take care of you. It's not dependent on how you react. The provisions, so the suffering reveals our heart, but the provision afterward reveals God's heart. God loves us when we act like children. And he says here, this is how it's going to be. So first we see that he brings the suffering to reveal who they are. Then he says something strange. He says, now that I've tested you, I'm going to give you a, a statute, an ordinance, a rule. So now that they're God's new people, their life needs to change, doesn't it? They can't be Egyptians anymore. They can't be slaves anymore. They're now God's people. And God's people know how, need to know how to live like God's people. And so he says to them, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians, for I'm the Lord who heals you. This is what's called a covenant. A covenant is a formal agreement between two parties. Now, this is a kind of a proto-covenant that will be fulfilled in about three chapters at Mount Sinai where we get the Ten Commandments. He's leading up to that. This is the beginning of that. A covenant says, if you do this, I'll do this. It's a contract. It's a formal binding contract between two parties. So God says to them, you're now my people. You're, you're a new people. You need a new life. And here's the beginning of the way you're going to live. If you do this, I'll do this. And what are the, what are the stipulations here? What are the requirements? See, this is, the, this is God training them to be a kind of people that doesn't throw a fit every time something goes wrong. So what is the training? First, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, loyalty, he's, he's saying, if you're loyal to me, if you heed my voice, if you listen to me, if you follow me, if you're my people, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, obey his word. Follow me and obey everything I tell you. That's the stipulations on the contract. Then what happens? Look at the benefits. I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Follow me and I'll heal you. That's a good deal. It's a good contract to be. They were slaves with nothing. God comes to them and says, I'll deliver you. If you follow me, I'll heal you. I'll care for you. I'll protect you. Obey, receive blessings. But the reverse of that is also what? If you don't diligently heed my voice, if you don't obey me, then I will bring on you the diseases of the Egyptians. It wasn't the Egyptians got punished because they were bad and the Israelites got released because they were good. 
God is saying here, you deserve the same plagues. The ten plagues should have been on you too. But I didn't let them come to you. But if you don't follow me, I'll bring them on you. Here's what's interesting. It happened. In Amos chapter 4, Amos is a prophet writing about maybe 800 years later. Israel had not obeyed, and God brought the plagues on them. The ten plagues that we read about, that kind of natural disasters and death, he brought it. In Amos 4.10 it says, God says, I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with the sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Israel only dodged the plagues for a few hundred years. And then God brought the plagues on them. Why? Because they did not listen to his voice. They did not follow him. They broke the covenant, and they got the ten plagues on them. See, we don't really think about that, do we? We sort of think of ten plagues, escaped, great. Then some other stuff happened later. But it's all part of the same story. They, were, they escaped the ten plagues, were supposed to follow God. They didn't. God revisited those plagues on them. He killed their armies. He destroyed their plants. Their fields were left barren. And eventually, they were taken out of the land, just like Pharaoh was taken out of the land permanently. It happened. They broke the covenant. Now, what does that tell you? We need a better covenant. I don't like this covenant because I saw what happened to the people who did it. And if you can walk through the Red Sea and watch God destroy everybody with your own eyes, and then you can't keep the covenant, I certainly can't keep it. Which means if you can't keep this covenant, what do you get? You get the diseases. God's not your healer. He's your destroyer. That's why we don't live in this time. Some of these things apply to us. In 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 4 tell us that these were given to us for an example, so we should look at that. But the covenant's not for us. This is what's called the old covenant. And if there's an old covenant, there must be a new covenant. And if there's a new covenant, it's because the old covenant couldn't cut it. The old covenant was insufficient. The old, so some of you may not know this, the word testament is the same word as covenant. Exact same word. Two English words, one original word. So when you say old and new testament, you're saying Old and New Covenant. So turn to the New Testament. Turn to the New Covenant. Turn to the Old Testament. Turn to the Old Covenant. That's important to remember because sometimes we distinguish the two as if they're not the same. They're exactly the same. Covenant and Testament are the same. Just two English words coming from one original Hebrew and Greek word. So what about this Old Covenant? Why is it insufficient? Hebrews 7, this is in the New Covenant, looking back and says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. It's talking about here in Exodus. If there was perfection under the old covenant, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? That's Christ. And not be called according to the order of Aaron. Aaron's Moses' brother, the first priest. Why not another priest from Aaron unless there was something wrong with Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. That's talking about this verse particularly, along with other verses that expand on it. 
He's saying this verse couldn't cut it. It was weak. This covenant where you obey God and he blesses you was unprofitable, was weak. For for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. This covenant was brought in to show that you couldn't keep this covenant. It was brought in to show you how bad people are. It couldn't make Israel good. Did you catch that? The law could not make Israel good. Could not train them. God, the perfect lawgiver and the perfect father, gave his people the law, and eventually he had to cut them off from the land. Here's the application. If God the father couldn't make his kids do right with the law, you certainly can't. That's the point here. Hebrews is saying that law wasn't good enough. It just ushered in a new law, a new covenant. See, here's why it was insufficient. What did this law offer? What did this covenant offer? Do right, and what do you get from it? Physical blessing. You get your kids to be born, and your land's not destroyed, and you don't die in the river. But that's not good enough, because if it was good enough, there wouldn't be a new covenant. If physical blessings were all you needed, then the new covenant was a waste of time. See, Christ came to show us one thing, that you need more than physical blessings. It's insufficient. It's weak. Is that what you're pursuing, though? Is that how you evaluate the world? Is that how you evaluate people? By how much physical blessings their actions are bringing? You see, if you think physical blessing is the ultimate, then you'll look to the Bible as a book to tell you how to get them. You'll go to Proverbs and say, how can I get the full life? But you've missed the point. That's an Old Testament life. That's an Old Covenant life. If your life is focused around people and things that will give you a better life here, you're living under the Old Covenant. You're looking for ways to get things, for ways to get a lifestyle. You're trying to live as Israel in the Old Testament. And if you're trying to live like Israel in the Old Testament, you're rejecting Christ in the New Testament. So when you put too much time into work, you're saying, I don't want Christ, I want Moses. When you try to give everything into your family, you're saying, I don't want Christ, I want Moses. Now, you probably didn't think of it that way, did you? But you've got two choices. You've got the Old Covenant or the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is do right and get stuff. The new covenant is different. And if you're just going after stuff, you're living under Moses. And if you live under Moses, you can't have Christ. Christ replaces Moses. Christ took on the old covenant. He took it on. He assumed it. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does that sound familiar? Israel was led up into the wilderness to be tested with evil. So Christ comes and says, I'll do that. I'll live the Old Testament life. I'll live under Moses. I'll go into the desert just like Israel did. I'll face hardships without food, without water. I'll do those things, except I won't complain about it. So Christ took on the Old Testament lifestyle, was tested, was tried in the wilderness. But what happened? 
Did he get the blessings for succeeding? He passed the test. He revealed that he was a good person. When the, when the hardship came, he didn't react poorly. He reacted perfectly. But what happened? He was still cursed. You see, that's what God's saying to the Israelites. If you don't obey, you'll be cursed. Cursed with plagues. Cursed with death. Cursed with suffering. But Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Wait, he passed the test. Yeah, he assumed the Old Testament life for us, passed the test, then took the curse. You're still trying to live that Old Testament life, trying to do right to get stuff. You're saying, Jesus, no thanks. What you did was great, but I don't want it. I'm going to make it on my own. I'm going to make it on my own. Christ took on the old covenant, fulfilled it perfectly, and then closed it out. That's what his death did. He took all the curses of the old covenant, all of them, and shut them down. The old covenant is gone. There's no more old covenant for you. You can try to live under it. You can assume it, but it's gone. God does not deal with people under the old covenant anymore. Christ took all of that and abolished it. He abolished the old covenant. Now he's free to do what he wants. You see, the law required things. It required what it says here. Obey God and you'll be protected. Jesus had to obey that. That's God's law. He did obey it. He couldn't just let people go. He could love people as much as he did, complete love, but he couldn't just let them go. So he took on the law and says, now that I fulfilled it, gone. Now I can do what I want. Because Christ did do what he wanted. He did what pleased him, and that was get rid of the old covenant and bring something better in. A new and better covenant. That's what the New Testament is. It's saying, Old Testament, look at it, and look how it didn't work. Now there's something new. And Christ says, this is the New Testament in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. And what do you get in the new covenant? It's not just physical stuff. It's all spiritual blessings. See, if you look at the Old Testament and say, that's what we need, you're missing the point. You should look at the Old Testament and say, that's not enough. Everything in Proverbs is not enough. We need more. We need more than the promised land. We need more than everything that was given to them. And Christ says, I'll give it to you. Ephesians says he gives us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. All of them. And we've already got them. What does that tell you about the new covenant? The new covenant is not a, if you obey, then you get blessings. It's, you've got all the blessings, now do something. Christ took all the curses, which leaves us all the blessings. So the new covenant says, believe and you get all the spiritual blessings in Christ. Luther said, one is not righteous who does much, but the one who, without work, believes much in Christ. The law... Moses, the Old Testament says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. That's the new covenant. Stop pursuing God's blessing. Start accepting his blessing. It's already there. Stop investing your life into your work, into your family, into your health, into food. Stop. It's not good enough. It's going to break you. It's going to put you to where Israel was, the bottom of a pit. Instead, look to what Christ has done. 
John 7, 37 says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, this is Jesus talking, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, if anyone's in the desert, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Isn't that what you want? Regular water is not going to cut it. New house is not going to cut it. Big family is not going to cut it. You need something else. You need living waters. You only get that in Christ. If you're suffering, God brought that into your life. Which means, how are you going to get through it? What's your hope? It's like, okay, Christ took my curses and died, but now I'm suffering. How do I get through this? Look at the last verse, verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there are 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. Now, the 12 wells and the 70, that's symbolic. 12 tribes, 70 elders. It's saying there's enough for everybody. You know why you can make it through the suffering? Because you've got an oasis coming. There's an oasis that God has prepared for every one of his children that you are guaranteed to get. And no matter how thirsty you are and how depressed you are and how discouraged and how dehydrated and how sinful and petty and selfish and unforgiving you are, God's got something for you, and you will get it. That's what the Bible promises. Your future happiness is secured no matter what happens here which means you can make it through anything here knowing that's ahead of you, knowing that the oasis is guaranteed for you, but you can't see it yet. So you have to believe that God's going to bring it to you. He brought it to the children of Israel, and he's got something new and better for you. You may not get it till heaven, but you will get it. That was our call to worship. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires let him take of the water of life freely. Give up on this world. Give up on everything. It's going to dehydrate you. It's going to suck the life out of you. But turn to Christ, and there's something for you in the future that's better than anything in your past, that's better than anything that's hurt you. It's going to make everything go away, but it's in the future. That's what we hold on to. That's what Christ offers. Accept it. Let's pray.